Welcome to Afternoon Delight. Real people, real stories, a local podcast for local artists. It's Jordy Delight here. Oh, honestly, what a wild week it has truly been for myself. I'm dropping Afternoon Delight on Sunday for you all to enjoy the guest this week. Oh my God, by the way, I was not coping with how that conversation goes. Wait till you hear how that one goes because it was honestly so much fun. Um, Me and this guest are very alike in different ways, but I loved spending time with them. And getting to know them because this is someone that I studied for my Emmy. Let that sink in. I've interviewed an artist that I studied for my coursework at university and got his opinion. You'll hear that later, but got his opinion on the work that I created that was inspired by his work. It's honestly what an eye opener and what an amazing experience that was. I was so grateful to get him on this podcast. I really was. My week has been wild. I have to just say this now. I am appearing on Monday on Channel 5 News at 5 o'clock discussing my work, which is just going to be incredible, so please check that out. I just done the House of Liabilities villain show last night, which was so much fun. Like, we all done kind of comedy performances and everyone needed that right now. And I, after the show, had a young... Um, performer messaged me who's been watching the shows asking if I would be their drag mother and mentor them and I mean again I was like what really okay I think you know you're doing well in the drag community when people are actively contacting you about being their drag parent and uh, you know I'd said to them do you want me a look queen or performer and they said uh, a performer and I said you came to the right gal <laughs> because I'm no a look queen trust me it's just never been who I am um, and I've also been asked to teach an elderly community on Zoom every Saturday morning, which means I can't do Glazed anymore for the next kind of month online, um, and teach them how to do drag for a fashion show they're putting on Zoom in February for Valentine's Day. And these women apparently are all in their 60s, but they're apparently really sassy, and this woman just said, we'll get on like a house on fire. But for me... You know, my mum works in care, my brother works in care, so that's a really nice thing for me to be able to do to kind of give back and feel connected to them in a way, which I really like. So, yeah, it's been a wild weekend. There's more exciting things coming out that I'll no doubt update everyone on the next uh, episode. But, yeah, let's get to the guest. This guest is a performance artist based in London. He is truly fantastic, so talented. I am always blown away seeing the work he creates particularly his stuff looking at sort of immortality rate in cf i mean how could you not be impressed with that he also like myself comes from the generation of cf where you had friends that had cystic fibrosis because something that i don't often touch on enough is a lot of me and my friends used to be able to hang around together in the cystic fibrosis ward in the sick kids hospital but the moment we were sort of like i think i'd have been six and a half um you know, we weren't able to do that anymore. And we talk a lot about that later in the episode. But this guest really empathised with me and knew what I'd went through. 
And also, it's just honestly so talented. And I 110% was flirting with him during that. However, I will say, he does have a partner and they're happily together. And his partner sounds so lovely as well. And they give me hope that, you know, hopefully I will meet someone that is going to be lovely for me. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce you all to the amazing artist. It is my hero, one of my heroes, Martin O'Brien. Season two, episode two, and guess who I've got with me? One of my favorite artists who inspired some of my MA work. I mean, I can't believe this. I'm fangirling. It is the incredible Martin O'Brien. Hey, Jody, thanks for having me on. It's a delight. Oh, to be it's a... <laughs> you are this. It's like cheesy puns as well for me. But it's, yeah, it's amazing. Thanks for, for, for having me on. It's really nice to. Sort of speak with people, I think, during this time. Totally. It's also just amazing to meet you properly, albeit digital, but yeah. Um, but we all know with having CS that that's kind of pretty much the only thing we can do these days. <laughs> yes. I was going to say, there's the, the kind of strangeness, I think, of this time, which I've you know, spoken about before around ideas of meeting. I'm sure we'll get on to talk more about this, but where people are struggling to meet each other, they can't be in the same room as each other. And, you know, it really reminds me of that sort of CF experience where we can't be together. We can't be in the same room, the distance, you know, all those things. And the, this time pandemic just kind of brings all, all of that up. It really kind of feels like the idea of cystic fibrosis is, is being understood by a wider population in some ways. You know, it's so funny you say this because, like, one of the first shows I've done with Fear Company in Edinburgh in 2014, right? We did inside Zorbs, and it was the whole point was we're in Zorbs because we couldn't obviously interact. We were like living in bubbles. But I always had CF, but the other four, we never told people who had CF. We kind of gave anonymity. Obviously, my friends were like, it's Jordan. Do you know what I mean? But um, anyone else wouldn't have known. And the whole point was the cross infection issues that people have with CF, obviously. And it's funny because Raylene Goody, who did season one, who has CF, who's also an actor. Um, she had kind of spoke to me briefly about it, but she'd kept very well when she was younger, so she didn't kind of experience the social interaction part. I was about six and a half when they stopped letting people with CF communicate, and I know we'll touch on this later on, with questions of how your experiences have been a bit different, because you're not too much older than me, but a little bit older. Um, I mean, you're, you've got your youth, I can see it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so it's just an interesting thing you're right that the pandemic especially people are maybe going to get into our heads a wee bit more for that which is I guess it's one thing that we can actually take from this pandemic that's been very helpful so yeah so for people listening could you introduce yourself for me that would be great yeah. um, so as Jody said my name is Martin O'Brien I'm an artist um and I make mainly performance work, but also video and some writing work that thinks about the sort of politics of sickness, what it means to be born with lash shortening disease. So I have cystic fibrosis like Geordie and the work, not really about the experience of CF, but uses that experience to explore things around sickness, the kind of, I would say the sort of politics and kind of philosophies of what it means to be born sick. And particularly over the last sort of five or six years, to that, that experience of reaching and surpassing a kind of big milestone, which was the sort of average life expectancy for someone with cystic fibrosis, which was 30, 
that has been a kind of big part of my work in recent years is thinking about mortality, living longer than expected. Um, you know, because growing up with CF, you have a certain idea of mortality, I think, which you just carry with you. I'm sure you have the same thing, Jordi, where you're, you kind of inhabit something which is about having a shorter life and, and that you, you just, it sticks with you. And definitely when I was a kid, seeing all the literature, which was about people with CF die before the 30, 30, 30, you know, this is the number that I was seeing everywhere. So as a kid, I had this idea that I would die when I was 30. And not even thinking, just like knowing I would die when I was 30 and grew up thinking that uh, and living that. Um, and then of course, I'm now 33. So I'm a few years after 30, I did not die at 30. Um, so that like transforms actually how you think about death, how you think about mortality, um, survival. So that's you know some of the things I've been making work with, about over the last few years, the idea of living longer than expected. And that's just absolutely amazing. Do you know what? You're so right. I remember when I was younger, right? My mom was mortified this happened, but True Movies was like a channel that I used to watch all the time because I like biopic shit, right? And I just remember that they did a CF story and my mum didn't know what it was because it was like one of these true movies probably the budget of like a grand let's face it um, in the States but the wee girl was like I think eight and she had told the doctor she had chest pain and he said oh she was fine and she got a colouring book and then she died the next day <laughs> and I remember sitting thinking oh my god she's eight I'm literally like ten is this going to happen soon and yes. yeah and it was yeah, and watching, watching the representations of you and the other representations you see of you are of death, early death, young, always young people, young people dying. So that's what that you know it becomes part of you. You've got to take that up. You know, you you you're just seeing yourself dying in different ways and sort of seeing your future. Totally, it was it was really like intense. Obviously, at school, especially because. We did CF in biology once, and the biology teacher was just horrific. He was in his, like, 60s, he was close to retirement. And I had said, oh, I, I might be off the pilum because I have to go to hospital and get an operation the week of the pilum. So obviously I wasn't going to get in, right? And he was like, oh, um, why did you have to go to hospital? I was like, oh, I have to get, like, I can't remember what it was, actually. There was something, I think it was like, I got a thumb and my stomach clamped or something. But it was years ago, it was like 14. He turned around and was like, oh, you've got CF. Oh, don't you worry about that. That's totally fine. And, like, you know, prelims aren't everything and exams aren't everything for some people. And I sat there like, am I missing something? Am I no computing with this? Like, and everyone went, oh my God, Jordi, are you going to like die? And I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I recognize that completely, that the idea of that no future, that, you know, there is no future, there's, there's no planning. You know, but the op the sort of opposite effect of that is the thing where you try to do everything really quickly and do as much as you can. And people have always said to me, why do you go so fast? Why are you moving so fast? Slow down a bit, Martin. You know, I do think it comes from the idea of of death being there with you. It's like you've just got to try and do the things that you want to do as soon as possible. That's so funny. My analogy was always, and uh, did a performance piece about years ago in 2017 that was in my first show we used to do that was all about I uh, did Cinderella, lip sync the brandy version of um, In My Own Little Corner from Raj and Hammerstein. Loved it. It's so great. But I did, um, I had this like sin bin and I poured glitter out of it. And everyone was like, what the fuck is going on? And I was like, I don't know. My brain just like, I haven't slept for like 12 years. So that's why. Um, and genuinely, the whole point was all about medication. And I have constant like alarms and timers going off to take medication. And there was this like image of like a clock ticking. And people were like, why have I got that? 
And then an analogy later in my documentary was all about, I was like, there's this clock behind me and it's ticking and I've got to keep things going. Now that was great two years ago when transplant was looking like it might happen soon and I kind of had to battle that clock. But literally with capsule, which we'll touch on later, obviously, like things kind of got reset and I literally now make it my thing to say, the clock has been reset. Now I can take my time and be mindful and grateful, but I get what you mean. I had to, I remember at one point I had to literally at 20 feet decide if I wanted to have kids soon. I thought to myself, like, fucking hell, like, obviously there's a lot of issues with fertility and stuff, but it was even just that I want with my partner, who was a lawyer at the time, to, like, consider adopting in the future, and I thought, fucking hell, like, I'm 23, and I don't want to stop doing my job, do you know what I mean? Yeah, but that, that thing of the reset is really, really interesting, the idea of, you know, moving on, because the idea that I was been sort of thinking about recently and writing about this idea of zombie time which yeah. which I call the, the sort of temporal experience of living longer than expected the idea that you know you have a different relationship to death um, and you inhabit it it's kind of inside you it's not a grim reaper anymore it's something that you're actually breathing in and that's inside your body um, and that, that sort of metaphor of a zombie is a way of trying to understand what it is to sort of keep going to live when you expected to have died. Um, you know, so that thing of resetting is really interesting. The clock's reset, you know, because things have changed, the expectations changed. And as you said, this drug, this new sort of wonder drug trio, you know, I think it's changed, changed the way we think about death for those of us with CF all of a sudden. Totally, I totally agree with you. So let's dive into this, right? Before, obviously, we get into your work and who you are and everything, which is brilliant, and I'm just so excited for this interview, I really am. Where did you grow up, study, kind of, did you have a part-time job growing up as a teenager? That What did you kind of do before you then ended up going into your, like, art form? Yeah, I grew up in Burnley, which is a little town in Lancashire, about an hour north of Manchester. Um, sort of working-class town, working-class family. And, um, and then when I started sort of thinking about I suppose I started thinking about performing it early. I wanted to be a performer, an actor, really, at the beginning. And um, I went to the youth theatre, which is where I spent most of my years as a kid, was at the local youth theatre in Burnley. And then eventually I went to um, Dartington College of Arts, which was a really small, it's closed down now, it was a small experimental arts college down in South London. Uh, not South London, sorry, in South, in south of England, down in um, Totnes in Devon. And so I went down there and really that's where things started to shift for me and I became less interested in acting and thinking more about performance as a way of exploring illness, exploring the world, you know, and that art and performance was a way of sort of communicating. Uh, so I was no longer kind of interested in acting as such at that point. It became something else that became like that opened up this world of trying to explore um, sickness through art absolutely brilliant oh my god like i just didn't realize that that's so cool like i can imagine you'd be quite a good actor though like i'm getting those like i know i've asked this before the podcast but like i'm seeing that leo vibes you're very into what you talk about and you go for it and i can see you're like yes center stage <laughs> <laughs> well this thing me acting was just, was just um put on a stupid voice and shout as loud as you can that, you know, that was that was my version of acting. <laughs> so I could do certain kinds of things, but, you know, I was not, never into a kind of method acting. 
I was like that when I was doing my undergrad and like I did an undergrad in drama performance first before I then went into like performance art in Miami. And I was like, oh, I'm not really kind of sure what I want to do with this because in first year, if you wanted to act and you had to do Shakespeare, if you wanted to be a contemporary performance student, you should have went to the Royal Conservatory in like Glasgow, do you know what I mean? Like you weren't, you weren't really going to do well at QMU for that. Um, they were really good writing, they did a really good writing course. So I did that as well at the side. Um, but the acting was very much, you know, method acting, Shakespeare, how you do your research and what the character should be and how it's written rather than how you actually would convey it yourself. And I'm very much a, I don't feel like that the role would do this, but a lot of it would be, but it's written that way, so do it. And I'd be like, oh, okay, right. <laughs> it was funny, the reason I went into performance art was because I ended up, I was constantly like off as I would be with CF issues. And, and my lecturer said to me, I don't want you to do the performance art module because you've got CF and it's too hard for you. Now, of course, I didn't like <laughs> do. I went, right, so I'm going to do it then and I'm going to push you off. And I pushed her for it and she was like, oh, I just don't know, Jordan, like, well, I think this isn't great. And I was like, no, 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 I'm doing it. Um, and then I did it and I did a, I really did well, actually, but I decided in my third year not to pursue that as my specialist just because I didn't get on with her and I thought to myself, like, it's just it's going to be too tiresome and stressful and explain that every time I'd say, I'm going to be off next week for this, I'd get the, oh, uh, uh -huh, yes, I can imagine. And I'm like, like, I just had that, like, difficult relationship. Um, but that was kind of, kind of why I did it, because I got told, you can't do this. So, of course, I just took the initiative to go, well, I imagine I can do it all. Um, and, yeah, it's so interesting. So, like, in terms of your art form, like, I know you obviously, like, done the course and stuff, but what kind of made you go, I really want to pursue performance art was there different artists that inspired you or did you just kind of go there's something here that I want to explore I mean there's two big things that sort of happened one when I was a student there at Dartington where I was um flicking through this book that I got from the library uh and I came across this picture and I'm sure you'll know this picture which was um a groin a penis with with the uh I'm sort of wrapped around it, stitched, and then two nails through the front, hammering it into a plank of wood, which is Bob Flanagan. And that, so I saw that image of the 19-year-old and, you know, gasped, first of all, and then read the description. It's, you know, something like, Bob Flanagan is an artist who suffered from and died from cystic fibrosis, and he made these works using sadomasochism to explore that. And, you know, so then all of a sudden, whoa, okay, art and performance becomes a place where you can explore sickness. And then, you know, two and two went together for me at that point. And seeing that and thinking, oh my God, here's somebody else like me doing something which is not, as we talked about earlier, those representations of sickness that we see so often on the television, um, the victim, the patient, the dramatic hero conquering something despite having cystic fibrosis, but this was something else completely that was going on here in his work with Cherie Rose. And then that, so that was one point when I discovered that. And the second point was after art school, I had started to explore performance, had made some pieces of work, but I'd also got this job over, job over in Poland with a, a theatre company there called uh, the Theatre Association of Gorgonica. And I was a, a performer in this theatre company. And it's way out in the east of Poland Outside the city called Dublin and little uh, Lublin, not Dublin. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> in Lublin, and um, 
it's a little village out there called Gajanitsa. And they have this theatre company, which really sort of feels like a cult in that all the performers live in this village. And it's directed by this kind of charismatic leader who has his apartment above the theatre and he directs it and he asks you to sort of become a monk for, for theatre in, in the sense that you train all day and you rehearse till 3 or 4 a.m. And you, you go to sleep for a few hours and you go back to training. Um, many, many different really intense physical things, which is, you know, that, that idea that you said of doing... <laughs> during the module, even though you're told not to, there's something about that idea of, oh my God, I've, I've got, to, got to get into that. I want to get into this weird sort of training, which I shouldn't be able to do, but I'm like desperate to go and do that. But I'd, I'd got into this company and then there was a big moment where, thing, where something just kind of a light bulb went on for me, which was performing for them, which was very strict choreography. You had to move in very particular ways, do everything in really particular ways and the timing had to be very precise. Somebody might be jumping there and you've got to arrive at the right time to get them that kind of thing, physical theater, Polish physical theater world. And so there's something about coughing which became very important because doing all of that stuff, I couldn't cough, it would destroy this whole image. So I couldn't cough during it. And I was just, you'd be like, you know, that, the attempt to hold the cough. And I would go off stage and just cough and cough and cough and, you know, cough, so much mucus. And so there's something about then being off stage doing all that and going, oh my God, actually, this is what I want to be doing on there, on stage where people can see that this is what I want to be showing, not that, that thing where you're just a body, but actually showing the sort of specifics of the body. So it's this combination of seeing Bob and Cherie's work, what they were making, then this sort of experience of being for a couple of years, you know, on and off part of this theatre company and, and through those going, okay, starting to carve out my world and my work and what I actually wanted to do. You are fucking wild. <laughs> Not even <laughs> record that. Like that is wild. That was some like I'm not sure if you're a massive fan of hers because a lot of people in the art world didn't really like her. I won't get into politics on this too much, but I just think of the artist as present with Bobovich taking all those young performance artists and doing that endurance training over that. I think they have to fast for like 48 hours and they have to make it all the time. And I thought, this is some wild shit. Like, and hearing you doing that coughing on stage, obviously, like, really, from youth theatre, I was backstage, like, hurt me. And, but it's that, for me, it's never been the sort of pulled in with a stomach, not coughing. It's been a, the tickle in my throat is so stressful. Like, I've been like, oh my God, the tickle in my throat, tickle in my I've got to say a word. If I say it, it's going to then swallow it or strain it. And then I'm going to cough and splatter everywhere. Um, and I was very lucky that when I'd done Wasted Youth in the honeymoon period, the honeymoon period, my second show was about lung transplant. So the drag show about lung transplants, and that was fucking wild. That was just weird, but it was really fun. And I was lucky that she had to have a coffin fit. I was playing um, this young girl in the show. So I did it, but I was actually acting. I wasn't actually coughing. And one of the audience members went, someone help that drag queen now. Like, and I was like, it's no real. Like, I was sitting there like, it's no real. Like, and when I came on stage at the end, did the wee sort of bows, the woman, it's my friend's mum had came backstage to the nurse. And she was like, can I just ask, are you okay? Do you need anything? And I went, what are you talking about? I don't need anything. She's like, oh, well, I heard you coughing. And I was like, that was part of the script. <laughs> the time I was allowed was part of the script. And no, it was fake. It was just so funny. Um, but that's amazing hearing that. And it's so funny because, and this is not to like our secret a lot, but 
in it weird, and I guess in a nice way, that you've came across this book with Bob Flanagan, and I came across you. Yes. And I think, yeah. lovely. Do you know what I mean? That I had the same thing, that I came across your work online. It's because we have a mutual friend in common called Luke, who's a dancer, who's like, you need to go and research Martin. And I was like, yeah, of course I will. And yeah, I was blown away that you've got a lot of endurance quality to your work that I find fascinating, um, which is great. Yeah, that's, that, that's been a beautiful synergy of seeing Bob and Cherie's work and then other artists, you know, finding my work and, and talking about it in those ways, which is it's really moving and it's really beautiful. Um, I came across was probably Mucus Factory at that time. Um, and that, that idea of endurance influenced partly by being in that Polish company, which is so, like where physical endurance was so important as training as part of their practice. And it was really something that I was, I think that's what drew me to going over there in the first place was that a kind of obsession with endurance. And you mentioned Abramovich, so there's a whole range of other artists making work using endurance that, that I found at the same time as finding Bob and Cherie's work. And then the idea of the coffin of mucus, so that piece of work that I made, Mucus Factory, like took that idea of actually really showing that it was about the mucus, showing the mucus, coughing the mucus, and was many hours long. Did different versions of it. I think the shortest version was was a couple of hours, and the longest was nine or ten hours. So there's different kind of versions of that work where I'm just performing physio, so beating my chest, coughing up the mucus, catching it in small jars, displaying it on shelves, and then um, using the mucus in different ways. That was important for me. That's not just performing performing some therapeutic or medical procedures, but that actually there's like something else to do with it. So I took the mucus and used it as hair gel, which is very, very good as hair gel. It really holds the hair very well. And I used it as, <laughs> as, um, as sort of adhesive to, to glitter my chest, to glitter myself, and then as lubrication to fuck myself up the ass with penis-shaped medical equipment. And it's not as good as lubrication, even though mucus essentially is lubrication. It's, you know, it's, that's what it's there in the body for. But as I'm, you know, I see F1 is very, very thick and sticky. You know, it's not, it's not good as lube, but it's very good as hair gel. I love that no one can see my faces. I'm just... <laughs> I know, I think you've got to put this face as part of it. You've been trying to like keep it going because I'm just sitting like, I've seen photos of this because I stalked your Instagram the other day just to get a bit of like um, inspo for questions and stuff. And I was like, I didn't realize that someone, I thought that was pain. <laughs> oh. oh. <laughs> My God. Like, now that putting up the ass thing was wild. I saw that photo and was like, Oh my God, I think that actually is a medical contraption that's been shaped like a fucking phallic thing. Was that actually, did you actually shove that up there? Yeah, repeatedly over many hours because it was a cycle of coughing, expelling, you know, going up and gelling, glittering, and then inserting the nebulizer. I mean, it's an old. I don't know if you had that that particular one that was using. It's like the one of the older ones that was a kind of big machine that used to vibrate. Missed that. <laughs> <laughs> that is just honestly, I'm going away. Right, do you know what? You've touched on it. I'm taking us on a bit of a tangent, but. You've touched on it. So 
you collaborated with Cherie, like Bob's like partner, like that is wild. You need to tell my listeners. So explain how that happened, first of all, and then just tell us about it, please, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is one of the, my sort of enduring friendships and relationships and, you know, collaborations now for 10 years. Cherie, I reached out to Cherie, would have been around 2009 or 2010. And um, you know, just introduced myself, and we, we had a little conversation for a while online, a kind of back and forth. Bob Flanagan died from CF in 1996, so this is you know well beyond that now, about 15 years or 14 years after that. Um, so we started a conversation, and then I it was during that time of mucus factory, which I was making in 2010 and first showed in 2011. At, uh, I had this commission to make Mucus Factory and it was going to be part of this event around live art and disability. And, you know, I said, I'd like to, you know, do something with Cherie. And, you know, she wanted to do a collaboration with me to sort of address Bob in a way, you know, to kind of think back through that history. And so we, we, we managed to, to get some funding to bring her over and perform as part of this same event that I was doing Mucus Factory at. So the, the idea was that at the end of the event, I'd been doing Mucus Factory for those nine hours, and at the end, I would come out of the little room that I was doing that in. People could come in and out of that room into the main space, and Sheree and I did a short performance, 15 minutes long, where we sort of reimagined a work that she'd done with Bob um, and Mike Callis. They did a piece called 100 Reasons, which was a video work, and it's a so close, it's a video work, so it's a close-up of Bob's ass. And it's Mike Kelly's voice reading a hundred different names for a paddle. And Cherie, every time he says one of the one of the hundred names, she spanks Bob on the ass. So you just see the ass getting spanked and you hear the voice a hundred times. So we just created uh, a live version where she spanked me a hundred times. After each one, I said, thank you, ma'am, please may I have another. She would spank again. The audience was counting, got kind of, you know loud and sort of hilarious and the idea was we'd just make this one piece of work that's all it was going to be which was my way of sort of addressing that history and honoring her and Bob and the stuff they'd done together and you know she was excited to make something again with another, with another body that had CF and sort of collaborate in that way and that's all it was going to be but we just hit it off you know as people and as collaborators we just you know we got on like a riot so now we've collaborated every year since then at least once either in London where I live or in LA where she lives every year I, I go there or she comes here or sometimes both we make work together we've probably made 10 performances or more together now over those over the last 10 years so it's become this sort of enduring relationship which is about their, their history but it's also become more and just about us you know and thinking about these two bodies that are very different ages, so she's almost 80, I'm 33, but both of us thinking about death in, in different ways. So, you know, she always articulates that when she was making work with Bob, it was really about his death. That's what they were obsessed with because that was so imminent. That's what they were making work about. But now, she, yeah, she's 79, so she'll be 80 next year. And so she's thinking about her own death. She had a heart attack a couple of years ago. She's really thinking about what death means her as well so we make these performances where I sort of become a stand-in for Bob or a substitute for Bob I like to say the sort of zombie of Bob and we recreate things that they've done in private 
or public performances and we make new things as well but it is about honoring that and then ensure says it's about taking it further you know pushing what's possible in performance um i guess a little bit of context i should say that they had bob and sheree had full-time snm relationship so bob was sheree's full-time slave that was the lifestyle that they lived for 16 years that they were together until he died and that was what they used to make their performances and their artwork with as well. It's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, because I had to research Bob, obviously, for my MA as well as you. I did a, an audio piece after we do this. Um, I did a thing on, it was like, why do I do drag? But it was like him talking about why he was into like, the scene of masculine and stuff. And I'd used this sort of research and it was such a minefield. And then I watched, it was actually, this is the most random story for you, right? You ready for this? I performed at Parliament two years ago, technically a year and two months ago, but two years ago, in drag, not that kind of performance. <laughs> like, <'cause> it, <laughs> like, it's for kids. But we were um, we were doing this young people festival politics thing, and it was young persons, like, get them into politics. Don't know why they were drag queens for it. We weren't doing anything <laughs> political. I didn't stand there pretending I was sturgeon. I stood there and lip synced, like, don't be in my parade from Glee. Like, it was me. <laughs> But we did that and it was really fun. And I met a young, I'll say young, she, well, yeah, she's young, she'll kill me. And I met this young woman who had a child with her. And she'd asked me to, if I was willing, because she was an events manager for a charity to do like sort of drag story time for kids. And I was like, yeah, I'd love to do that. Let's chat. Um, and she was really into that scene. And she was talking to me. Her daughter was there, but her daughter had headphones on. I was like, and she'd say, oh, yeah, like you do drag. Like, oh, you've got CF, like Paul Fan again. This was years ago. And I didn't know who he was. And was like, Who's that? And she's like, oh, you need to go watch. Bear in mind, all right? She didn't really think to warn me. She goes, go watch his movie. And I went, yeah, I can't watch that. No warning. Obviously, sadly, Bob Harrington passed away. But at the end, there's that really difficult scene that he's struggling to breathe and dying. And I've watched this and I'm like, oh, my God, I did not predict this. And what am I going to do now? And it was an eye-opener. It was, I still think the movie was incredible. And the whole thing was an eye-opener. But obviously, then I went and got his book and read it. And yeah, blown away that you've managed to collaborate with like Cherie. Like it's just it's absolutely incredible. And I like take it that you're still you're good friends, like you can text or everything. Yeah, we well we speak every week on the phone, so you know we just call to <laughs> have our chat. <laughs> um, she says, Oh honey, I feel like I feel like I'm your granny calling you. <laughs> Spanked you. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, so yeah, the granny that's spanked me. Exactly. That's absolutely hilarious. And I take, um, I'm being a bit nosy asking this. This is not because obviously I fancy you as well as this, but like you've got a partner, haven't you? I do, yeah. yeah. Have you been together for quite a while then? We have been together for 13 years, yeah. So it's long. It's, you know, it's long. He's seen all of this, been through all of this sort of world with me, yeah. That's absolutely incredible. And I take it he was absolutely fine with Shirley spanking you. <laughs> well, if he wouldn't have a choice. <laughs> I bet he was getting involved. I bet he went over flab seconds because you pissed me off last week. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but, you know, the brilliant thing with Sheree, of course, when someone who's been a dominatrix for all those years, you know, she... She sort of knows, she knows what she wants and she, um, you know, <laughs> you, you, you do as you're told. <laughs> no, 
question. That's why I'm here for it. I'm like, this is so, this is so great. Like, I'm very involved in a lot of stuff like that, so I love it. I think it's great, and I'm also just pro sex work as well on top of that. So, I'm very much an open book with these things. Like, I, you'll have seen because I literally tagged on Instagram. This is how we ended up chatting. So I was like, I'll tag him and see what he says. That I'd done those like fetish photo shoots, like back in the day called Muck, which was I was calling it Muck to sort of. Like, they were like, what are you going to call it? And I was like, I don't know, Jory's sex book, because it was like Madonna originally was my thinking, because I'm obsessed with Madonna, another Leo like yourself. And it was like, right, I want to do kind of like the sex book, because that to me was just groundbreaking that she did that. And then I was doing Bob Flanagan and then researching you, and I was like, oh, I can put this all together and I'll do like fetish and do the CF with it. But I'd called it muck because I felt like everyone, especially my friends, because my friends are sex workers and stuff, and friends are into the sort of DSM, the sort of masculine stuff too, that it felt very much like sex was still considered in 2019 dirty. And I was like, oh, well, what a perfect name, muck, like dirt, like what comes at my chest, do you know what I mean? And, and those photos were just so much fun, but uh, to this day, like everyone, it's so funny because now I wear wigs again, because I didn't wear wigs for a while doing drag, right? But when I've done that photo shoot, everyone is still in the drag group, like, no, those photos were just like, brilliant they were so different and that's been my kind of drag aesthetic years of trying to be dragging on conventional ways do you know what i mean um but yeah totally beautiful, totally beautiful images yeah i remember seeing them on there on that social media when you tagged me in the totally gorgeous images you know very sexy images and i think that thing of of making something public, which I think is really important in this kind of work, and that's part of the politic, is visibility and, you know, visibility of sickness, but also sex and lifestyles, you know, the way Sharia always talks about the idea of trying to make those private things public, and that's really part of that, of that politic of the work, is there's not like a dirty thing to hide away, but it's just something to celebrate and make public. And I think that connects with illness as well finding ways of making it visible in interesting ways not those kinds of same old tropes that we see again and again on telly yeah totally i think for me as well like i had been put on six months before that on overnight oxygen because i just apparently i can't breathe when i like, sleep who knew right but honestly <laughs> it's really helpful and i just remember and I was very upset, as I would be, because I thought I was at that point, it was like transplant was going to happen. Then I'm on over at Oxford, I thought everything's ending. I just went, oh, it's all ending, everything's like shit, great. But then, obviously, mum saw in, in February when I'd done that shoot, I was like, well, do you know what? I'll do this shoot and I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll own it, right? Madonna would own it, I'll own it, right? And honestly, like the amount of support and love it from everyone, but like even my mother, of all people, wants a print of it in the house. Like, oh together but she's like i want that one where you've got the black on and the nasal prawns but you're posing that just looks iconic and i was like oh thanks but but my favorite is still i think it's just tongue-in-cheek but my favorite is still the cinnamon in front of my crotch because it looks like i'm naked oh, yeah. I just, <laughs> i'm naked <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but yeah it was such a great photo shoot to me it was so much fun and it, it means loads that you actually enjoyed it and loved it because it's obviously oh. you're creating that do you know what i mean um so in the lead up to the pandemic, you know, what had you kind of been doing project-wise before this then obviously kicked off because the pandemic, we're about 10 months now. So what kind of had you been doing before that? Well, you know, 2020 was supposed to be an amazing big year for lots of different things I was going to do. And I got one of those things in February, which was a performance at Tate Britain. That we just managed to do just before. That was, I think, about the 8th of February. So 
people were starting to say, oh, is this COVID thing, you know, sort of, what is this COVID? You know, I don't think there was, at that point, I don't think there was any cases in the UK. Thank you. But it, yeah, I think it's because Italy has started going like a bit haywire because I remember it was in therapy randomly. My therapist had said to me, oh, like, you know, how are you doing this coronavirus stuff? And I was like, what? Because I'm in the middle of pure talking about like my life and being a mess. And she's like, what's coronavirus? And I was like, what are you on about? Because I just was ignorant. I didn't know what to do. So I was like, oh, I don't know what you're on about. But then obviously four weeks later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it was, it was interesting doing that project. That was like the end of one thing and, and then I was going to start something else which was another big performance in March that didn't get to happen but the, the thing at, in February was a sort of coming together of a project I'd done as I was getting up to 30 so it had been um, the kind of end of that project where um, leading up to my 30th birthday and I already explained sort of significance of 30 for those of us with CF um, the 30 hours leading up to the 30th birthday I spent those 30 hours in a disused morgue in South London with a filmmaker friend of mine Sahil Merchant and he filmed um, 30 different actions to camera one on the hour every hour for the 30 hours and then um, we took these actions we turned them into a video installation which happened in Liverpool and then a sort of performance lecture which is what we did at Tate um, which was a kind of prophecy of a world sickness so I had these texts that I read and we had um, video playing and I had some live actions that I did as well but it's, it's sort of strange because I was imagining this the, the kind of collapse of civilization and of capitalism because of sickness and everybody getting ill everybody getting sick and then you know a few months later it's COVID everybody you know it seems to come to pass in a way so people were blaming me for the pandemic at that point and <laughs> <laughs> you brought yeah, me up. <laughs> um, you know, that happened and then the thing that I was supposed to be working on was the project the last breath society which was was going to happen at the ICA in March last year and hopefully will it's just delayed so we keep getting delayed so hopefully it will happen at some point the idea of that is um trying to think about a kind of collectivity or bringing together of people um, in different ways who are sick or older or thinking about breath, thinking about death, thinking of, about dying, illness, and like, to think about a kind of society or a group of people and a, like a bringing together of those people. Um, I guess a lot of the stuff I've done has always been about loneliness of being sick or has been about solitude or doing the things on your own apart from the, the things with Cherie and you know I was starting to get excited about this idea of like what does it mean to bring people together as a collective a society or a group and um, the piece of work so it was going to be called the last breath society and then in, in brackets coffin coffin as in coffin <coughs> and then coffin the thing that you buried in uh -huh. after you die. And so I have nine coffins stacked up in my studio at the moment, which we're going to have the sound recordings of coughs coming out of them that we're going to be kind of form the central part of the installation and then different videos and then live performance, which I do in and around the coffins. People just come in and out as they wanted. Um, so that, that's the idea and that's what I was working on. And in a way, that's what I'm still working on, but in a strange way, like never knowing 
when it's going to be or you know, when it's eventually going to happen. Absolutely nuts. You just like blow me away, genuinely. Like that's that's absolutely amazing. I love the togetherness thing because for now, especially right now, actually, like I feel like we are in a pandemic that I've, I did my film for my MA looking at loneliness, but a universal cohesiveness that everyone was together in this loneliness because we were all locked down in our houses with the same thoughts. Did that relationship work? did I fuck up at work and I won't have a job anymore? Everyone was going through all these things, do you know what I mean? And I felt it was so funny, but for me, I'm very much the kind of person that if I've ever got something worse off or a little bit better in both ways than someone else, I'm always like, oh, well, I can't complain about that or be excited by that. But the moment that Kath showed on the NHS, I went, right, I can be amazed about this and I can talk about this now because I felt like I didn't feel guilty about other people maybe not being on it as quicker because I got on it in compassionate grounds. Whereas... With the other stuff with the pandemic, it was like, I didn't want to complain about me having to shield because two of my friends lost their jobs. And I thought, I have to shield, but I'm at home working from home, luckily. Like, you know what I mean? Like, but with the pandemic happening, I didn't feel as alone as I would have when I was going through like a lung transplant assessment. I was like, no one else can really relate to this apart from people that are going through it. Do you know what I mean? Whereas everyone else would go, I don't understand why you're like upset, help me understand. And I'd be like, oh, you won't understand. Whereas with the pandemic, how many people can I phone and go, yeah, it's shite that I can't leave my house again. Can't go on Grindr this week, lol. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, is that? So it's great that you've then went, well, no, let's bring people together, especially with something like that. That's a lovely thing. And that doesn't also limit to CF because that could literally be anyone with asthma, COPD, MS, you know, different um, illnesses and disabilities. So that's great. I, I really, I'll, hopefully I can somehow see that or come and see it when it's obviously allowed. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, that was conceived of way before coronavirus you know um, but it just that I mean that's one of the things that I'm starting to think through for when it does happen is that those images the idea of the coffin with coughs coming out now actually means something completely different now that the cough just signifies something so specific now in people's cultural imagination I think which is to do with the pandemic and contagion so all of a sudden that image is, is shifted and that's why I'm thinking through is like how to work with that and how to sort of manage to keep doing the thing but understand that that it's shifting that the whole meaning is kind of shifted it's so funny because like i had to think obviously i was really lucky that we're on capture in february just because of the compassionate grounds thing but i do sometimes sit and think we're 10 months on now so i literally i forget that that was not a year ago and I sit and think to myself, like, if I was ill right now, coughing all the time, I would be so anxious going into Sainsbury's now when it's allowed, obviously, to then stand there and cough and people might think I've got COVID because people are so stressed right now that they're not meaning to judge people, but it's like anyone coughs, it's COVID. Like, I had, this is so ridiculous, right, a couple weeks ago, I had, you might get this, but I'd left my hair on overnight. And I woke up with the driest fucking throat and cough because of the heater being on all night. And I never leave my heater on. I don't know why I didn't even think to turn it off. And I woke up and went, <laughs> haven't had a cough for like ages. And I went, I've got COVID. I'm ill. I've got, I've got, I've got of someone. I've touched a pole. I've touched like the basket and someone's gave me it. And I've got this cough. And then literally come the afternoon, I went, oh, I'm fine. Like <laughs> it's gone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, but that's the mentality people are in. Do you know what I mean? And it is so stressful, and that's why I'm so thankful that I actually am doing well, because not even just being well, but 
that anxiety is not there that if I go to a shop and a cop people aren't going to think I've got COVID. Do you know what I mean? Because the amount of time I'm splattering on the bus and I cover obviously my mouth, but the cough was intense. There was a tickle, a cough, and it didn't stop for the 20 seconds easily. Maybe, and that was earliest. Do you know what I mean? Um, and I, it's just, it's just such an, an interesting time right now because like I had things lined up before the pandemic that actually a lot of the places have contacted me about to then continue them, adapt them for online, which is amazing because I really was like, what am I doing with my life? Do you know what I mean? I'm, I, you get a government telling you you should be turning cyber and you think, what am I doing with my life? And do you know what I mean? It's very stressful. Um, so it's so interesting having you on because you're a bit similar to me like we've mentioned earlier, right? But what is it like for you now being, you said you're 33, yeah? What's it being 33 with CF now and sort of Caftrio coming out? I mean, are you on Caftrio or are you on one of the other medications? Caftrio, just, um, I think two months on Caftrio, yeah. And so, what I mean, it, then? It's, 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 it sort of feels unprecedented, this, it is unprecedented, you know, just the idea that there's this, this thing, this, and it's just two tablets, uh, four tablets a day, two in the morning, two in the night, or three, two in the morning, one at night, that can, um, you know, do, that can do the, you know, as much as it's doing. And of course, there's like such a build up reading, people in the US taking it before we got it. I know you got it a wee bit earlier, because um, you're on the transplant list, right? So you got it a little earlier. earlier. But I guess, the, mm-hmm, I guess there's still that build up of, of like reading about all these kind of amazing stories of what it's done to people. Um, I think the closest thing, it's not a cure, but the closest thing to a cure that we've ever seen and maybe that we're likely to see, I don't know, in our lifetime, but it feels like it's such a big, such a big sort of step forward in cystic fibrosis treatment. It's, it's really, really incredible and very moving and emotional, I think, for family, you know, and for us, but for our families and you know those people that have that brought us up, and so us when we we're very sick. You know, for me, when I was a kid, I was sicker than I am now, actually. But you know, it's kind of seeing you at those stages where they're very worried you're going to die. To kind of have this, is, is, I think, is really, yeah, it's, it's really beautiful and moving. Um, it's a big change for those of us with CF. But I, I guess one of the things about CF. You know, that's still, you know, it's still the difficulty of not being able to form communities. You know, that that's still the big difficulty of CF or be in the room or, you know, see each other, do that kind of thing. You, you said you were six when they changed that, right? Yeah, so. so for me, it was, I would have been at six and a half, and I just remember that it was getting talked about, but it wasn't actually confirmed. Like, it was getting spoken about, like, my CF nurse was like, Basically, like anyone with sepatia was like in ward six at my sick kids' hospital, mm-hmm. and they kind of separated off the two wards from that. And they had said, Oh, we're, we're, there's a lot of research proving that um, different children with cystic fibrosis being around each other can actually make bugs grow more in depth and also mm-hmm. give bugs that they don't necessarily have that aren't dormant. And then they brought it in, and it was just really hard for me. I was very young, but I still I'd had the sort of cognitive ability to process what my friendship were. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. Haley was sadly no longer with us, who was sort of, I was mean, she'd been about 12. So she was sort of just early teens, like 12, 13. She was kind of like my mum on the ward, because I was constantly in hospital from age two and a half 
up until even when my mum did them at home for me when I was a child and a teenager. But I was constantly on IVs like three months at most. I'd get three months and I'd be on them, I'd yell. Um, anything extra was a bonus and probably down to something else. I was really lucky when I was 17, I had a year where I had none. And my mum was like, cool, this is why my doctors were close, why I just did really well. It was the year that house parties had started. I could actually enjoy high school. I was doing a youth theatre, but like we were doing proper shows and I was getting leads. I was applying for uni. I'd got all my hires, so I didn't even have to worry about getting uni. Like six year was just, I could get pissed and have fun. Like, and it was just that I think I took full advantage of that. And I mentioned this to really before that. I didn't have to do them as much, so I stopped doing them as much. And then after a year, everything went a bit, a bit AWOL at home. So I just didn't do that. So it was only very control. And then I got ill with a really bad infection, got put on orals, but I said, oh, I don't, I, no, I got put on IVs, but I said, I don't want to, I want orals. My mum was like, why are they put on orals? I was like, oh, I don't know, they would give me IVs. Like, totally fit then, told her years later about it, because I just did. And it was, do you know what, I was so unlucky that the one time I did that, I got a really bad infection that I coughed on a bus and I just felt a pop and went, what the fuck happened there? Like, because I just went, that was weird. I've never coughed at like that. But my whole body tingled from like my ankles up to my head. And I went, and then I turned around and this woman sitting on the bus looks at me like, are you all right? And I was like, oh, I'm fine. Yeah, I'm going to get off here. Because I was panicking a bit. Because I just didn't feel right. And then I looked at my phone, like at my face on my iPhone and was like, I'm chock white. And then I was walking and went, I can't breathe. Like, it's really bad all of a sudden. So I was lucky that when I left, I grabbed a tenner off my bookshelf just in case, right? Got on a black cab and was like, can you take me home, please? And he took me home. And I paid him a tenner and didn't even ask for change. I was panicking. And he was like, oh, you need to change. I'm like, it doesn't matter. Went in my house. It was like, to my mom, I can't breathe. And I, for some reason, I had a lot of pain up here, right? So I was like, my port's collapsed. Like my port cap was like, it's collapsing. Oh my God, I'm going to die. But we got to A&E and it turned out my lungs collapsed. And I didn't even realise. Yeah, and it was a very horrible experience. Like I would never want to go through that again. Because it didn't just feel painful. It felt weird. But my whole body was getting twisted and turned inside. And it was not pleasant. But that kind of one moment that I didn't do things. I then really paid for it that I never fully recovered. Like I'd get infections every few months. You know what it's like being queer in the queer community that you want to go and raves, misbehave, didn't really help either. Uh, all done now though, but it wasn't exactly the most easy time. You know what I mean? The point of that, because I'm just realizing I'm ranting on my own podcast. The point of that was that after all that, I kind of was like, well, I need to kind of live my life to this clock. But then luckily when I was just getting listed for transplant, it was when I was going to get listed that month. They were like, we've got you captured the compassionate ground scheme because you're going on the list. And I was like, oh, and they were like, and now I've got a meeting with the doctor from Newcastle on the phone next week to say I'm fine still, great. But this, especially with like the younger people that knew other people with CF, like I lost a lot of my friends to CF. Do you know what I mean? Like I lost a lot of older people to CF. There's some that have had transplant and they're great. And they, they chat on Facebook, but it's so weird explaining to people like younger people who like have got CF or 18 and they find out through the documentary I've done on Instagram, like one of them found an Instagram and messaged me and I was like, oh, hiya. And he said, oh, what was it like having CF? And I was like, oh, like, you know, I, I couldn't interact with people with CF. And, well, no, I could, I could back in the day, but now I can. So it's so weird. And did you with that? He's like, no, 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 we obviously stopped. It was just so difficult to explain to people how mentality changed that 
people I saw, like my friend Sam, who I grew up with, if we were on the ward, I couldn't go up and say, hi, how are you, hun? I'd have to go, okay, can't talk, I'll message you on Facebook. That was it. Very, very, that's an amazing story. That shift was so, um, yeah, that shift from being there together in the waiting room in Burnley, in the hospital, we only had um, the paediatrics, so we could only go there when we were kids for the CF. And then we had to go to the adult one in Manchester. But in Burnley, for that, for all, that whole time, we would just be there playing with each other in the waiting room, all the CF kids. We all went at the same time and played, and went in one by one. And then it changed for me, I think I was about 16 or 17 when I moved to the adult one. I remember the first time going in on the ward and um, on the computer. Sorry, someone's banging at my door. Okay. Jade, go get it. Do you mind if I just... It's absolutely fine. Yeah, you're totally right. And it is so interesting, just like my friend Sam, right, that I was just mentioning, like it, when it got introduced, I think we would have been about sort of six and a half, so I think it was yeah. eight. We were eight and we would like, because obviously they didn't get cubicles for everyone with CF. It was weird. It was sort of, right, you can't hang around with each other, but you have to go on the ward together in different like areas. So they'd put like her at the top, me at the bottom, obviously. <laughs> and it would be like, eventually it was every CF person had to go to cubicle because they didn't have an option. Um, but we would always, when it was on the wards, uh, both coincidentally go to the loo, which probably sounds really sordid, but it wasn't. And we just sit in leather because the toilet cubicles had a wee gap at the back and we'd sit on the top and chat, which is so cute. Like, it's so sweet. She works for the Butterfly Trust, um, which is, like I said, my grossest chat in Scotland. So it's amazing that she does that. We're still good friends in chat. Um, but those memories are something that our people CF won't have. And I do kind of, in a way, feel a bit sorry for them that they don't get that. But equally, it was actually maybe better because... There's nothing worse than getting that and then having it taken away from you, I feel. Yes. That was so strange. I, just, I remember the first time I went in on the ward after this change, I was in the room, you know, and, I, and one of the nurses came and said, oh, so-and-so down, you know, two doors down, struggling to get on the on the internet, can you help her? I said, yeah, yeah. And I, and I sort of got up to go, and she said, no, 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 you can't go in, you have to do it by the phone. And so she's two doors down and we're on the the little hospital phone talking to each other and I'm trying to talk her through it. You know, it's just such, it was, oh my God, okay, right, that's that's where we're at. Okay, we can't even, you know, go in to do that, I see, okay. Oh, that's, that's just, that's actually really sad, but uh, like quite lovely in a way, just because it also reminds me of being younger. Just that, um, so it's so funny, so what's, we obviously talked about Cafeteo, but what were your experiences like for the first sort of late week? Because I know what mine were like, but I'm intrigued to see what you say. Like, did you have quite a drastic change or did not actually much change apart from not needing antibiotics if you wouldn't mind sharing? I am, um, you know, the first, the first day, I coughed up more mucus in that day than I'd done for, I don't know, for, for weeks. You know, I cough, I do cough up quite a lot and quite productive as the doctors say. But that day, oh my God, I was sitting, you know, doing some work and just was constant every sort of 30 seconds, you know, and just this 
tissues and a bag, a little bag next to me, just putting them in for the whole day. It was unbelievable. But after that, I didn't ha- I didn't get any of the the things that I'd read could happen. You know, sort of ninety percent body rash. I didn't get that. I didn't get any of those sort of strange things. It was just that, just that day. But what about you? For me, right? Well, I'm Martin Armstrong. <laughs> I have shoulders now. I don't have to wear shoulder pads anymore. It's great. <laughs> like, honestly, I went so broad. I was like, who is this? Who is she in the mirror? Wow. And um, I was similar to you. So for me, the way, best way to describe this for me, and Raylene talked this well, but it's good to get you on the topic too. With me, it was the, the, I was in the hospital for it because I was keeping so poorly they had to monitor me on it because they were worried that, uh, like you said, an adverse rash or even an anaphylaxis in a very rare situation, but what if I had been the unlucky one? And I was the <laughs> compassionate grounds, I was the fourth person on the ward to go on it. Because um, they've got, there were people that were really ill that they couldn't get transplants, so we got them at first, which was great. So I um, was really fortunate to get on it, and then in the morning, they were like, right, we'll give you the first dose, these two tablets, make sure you eat something, blah, blah. I was like, cool. They were like, you might feel a bit woozy or get a headache or you might feel dizzy, but don't worry, it'll all pass. So I went, cool, no problem. They just asked for pain relief. Um, and I was sitting there and I was like, all right, I wonder. And I was thinking to myself, I wonder what this will feel like. Like, I didn't feel like anything. And I went, oh, nothing, nothing's changed. Great. First goes in and I just feel the same. So I was sitting there, like, on my bed, just watching Kelly. I think it was women was literally on my favorite TV show. And I was like, right. And I just felt like I needed to cough something, but not a pain and more like a bubbling in my chest. I went, oh, I feel a bit rattly. And I went, oh, and I didn't cough. I went, oh, hold on, got this pot. And I went, <laughs> poured it at me, disgustingly poured it at me. And you can't hear what Martin is literally just getting excited by this because obviously you would be. <laughs> but I was like, pouring it at me into this pot. And I thought to myself, like, I didn't even have to literally cough. I just, it was like, I sort of went, <clears throat> Like, because my throat was dry. And it poured out and I went, oh my God, okay. So I went, right, put one down. And five minutes later, oh my God, another pot. Do you know what, Martin, in like four days, I accumulated 13 pots that were full. Yeah. Like, full to the brim. Raylene was like, because I saw Raylene had documented hers on Twitter because she was on a month before me. So that's why I was like, you were on it for me. And I kept kept watching her video being like, hopefully I'll have the same experience. Hopefully I'll have this. Because she drastically improved so quick. My doctor came in the next day, like, well, how are you doing? And I was like, well, there's five cups full. And then come four days later, he was like, how many now? At 13, I could make an installation at this. <laughs> Just like, uh, yeah. like, sellotape them, glue them together. But I was like, this is hilarious. Um, so I had that. I then, so that would be the middle of February, which after my birthday, happy birthday to me. Then I went, yeah. I went to DJ Bongo Club in Edinburgh. And Bongo Club's a great venue, but it's got lots of stairs. So I, oh shit, I, better, I didn't bring my inhaler. And I was in drag and heels and I went up the stairs, no problem. And went, oh. And my friend was like, oh, well, well done. Are you all right? I went, oh yeah, I don't know how to do that. Okay. Got drunk, had a great night, came home. Next day, I know this sounds so ridiculous to say this, but my hangovers are not as nearly as bad as they were before this. I'm not saying it's a hangover cure, but I just don't feel as hungover the next day. Like I'm like ill for an hour and then I'm fine. Whereas before I would have been floored for a week if I'd drunk. <laughs> Maybe that's just down to age, though. But I was just like, right, okay. And the week after that, I did a speed date at night at the gay bar CC's in my, like, uh, town. So I was like, right, cool. Again, I was fine. And I was like, oh, I don't feel ill. Brilliant. And then a week later, I went and did my photo shoot for uni, which was the erotica shoot. 
and the um, and other photo shoot of someone else that I worked on the course. And then the pandemic hit, and I was like, oh, and I just remember like going to the streets in Argyll, Edinburgh, and my boss was like, why are you here? Coronavirus. And I was like, what are you talking about? But I literally was fine. And she went, well, you look very well. And I was like, I feel brilliant. And then obviously that was four weeks, no, three and a half weeks. And then when the pandemic hit, I kind of turned around and was like, I can't test the water with this. I can't actually see how well I am because I can't leave that. Um, and that was it. So that was my experiences. But I just genuinely, like, my lung function went up 11%, which was just incredible. And so many people have, like, had better results because they've got it very early on or they just kept very well, which is amazing. I put on quite a lot of weight. I was a bit pissed off about that for one reason. They didn't warn me. And I had a lot of DJs and drag gigs I had to do during the pandemic online and I was like none of my drag clothes fit this is great <laughs> like but I went up from I don't mind sharing this but I went up from 57.5 kilos and I went up to 65 and a month and a half which is just how is that possible yeah like two and a half basically how is that possible <laughs> yeah that's incredible I mean yeah similar not not as dramatic but I had been stuck for 15 years at like 60 to 62, you know, is where I could go. And then, and now it's 65. So it's, you know, it's done that sort of similar, similar thing. And the lung function has gone up by about 10% as well. So that, you know, this, it is amazing. But like you, I was thinking, I don't know if I feel, I don't know if I, how better I feel because I'm not doing things where I, I'm really exerting myself. I'm just pottering around in my house. Do you know what I feel for us as well as artists, though, for me, it's what's exciting me now is that when things do open and obviously we can go back to it, I'm fascinated to see how much we can do and what we can push ourselves to. Because obviously yeah. a lot of endurance work. I'm not an endurance artist, but I used to work as an artist, study, DJ. Like, I'm now working for the BBC as well, but like I was doing all these things that would, I'd do them for a month and then I'd burn out. Whereas I'm now like, oh, will I be able to do all that and not burn out? Hopefully, which will be exciting. That's kind of the only thing getting me through this. I think the moment I knew I was well was when I did my fundraiser for my friend that passed away and I walked up Arthur's seat in dry. And that walk, I wouldn't have been able to have done that a year ago. Like, I just wouldn't have been able to have done it, so I wouldn't have done it. About four years ago, maybe. And the last time I walked it, I was like nine. Do you know what I mean? I, last time I actually went up that Arthur's seat, I was uh, nine. And I thought to myself, my friend was like, how do you think we'll do? Because it'll probably be like two hours, right? And we got there and it was windy as fucking hell. I'm in drag looking a mess. My makeup is everywhere. My hair is everywhere. And it, I wore Adidas trainers for R4C and it is raining, so I'm slipping. I actually made a joke. I was like, you can just see it now. Drag people's R4C doing a fundraiser for their friend that's died. I'll be on the fucking front evening news. Like, I could just see it. But my friend and me got up there in 45 minutes. Wow. Like, with the set on top of that, an hour, because I had to actually get up that rock bit, which was the hardest part. The irony was the hardest part was just getting from the rocky gray, green bit at the top to literally the little bit of, like, rock that's got the wee, you post for a photo bit. And I just thought, I'm well, because I wouldn't have been able to have done that a year ago. This is working. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, just hearing these stories, is, it is incredible that, that one drug can make such a big difference. It's just, it's just incredible. Absolutely not. 
So, like, what have you been kind of doing? I know this is like such a silly question for some people, but what have you kind of been doing to cope during the pandemic? Because we've had a lot taken from us, but also just it's a lot of stress for me and you with COVID because we've got an underlying health issue that's not even just an underlying health issue, but it's respiratory. So what kind of things have you been to cope? I've barely been leaving the house, you know. I haven't done any of the shopping or anything like that. So I've really just been stuck, well, mainly staying in. Um, but I'm, I teach at university. I'm a university lecturer, which is how I make my living, really. And so that, you know, doing all of that has been has been really good because there's, there's contact with other people, you know, young artists and um, students. So, so teaching has been the thing that's occupied most of my time. And in terms of my own work, writing is the thing that I've turned to. I mean, I've got to say, I've felt like my creativity has been sapped by this whole experience. I've struggled to really get like a boner for making in the way that I usually do. So it's been, but writing is something that I've been able to do and, you know, making in that way, um, those kind of things, which I might, some stuff published and maybe publish other stuff as it goes along. But that's the sort of creative thing I've been doing is writing rather than making. Um, but the strangeness of just getting used to being in your house and just, you know, being, staying put. I'm kind of climbing the walls. I'm not really a, settled person so I'm really desperate to get that jab and to get out and start just moving around amongst people again I know Martin I'm a raver how do you think I feel right now I'm yeah you're a raver yeah <laughs> or fucking wall house raving on my two cats <laughs> like as oh. it's been so stressful but I understand and I think it's great you talk about writing because no one's actually mentioned about how writing and doing sort of creative like work like that really can help because I've always been a writer like that was what I specialised in my final year at QME was the writing playwriting one and everything I've ever done performance wise has always been the narratives I've created or I've collabed with people and interviewed them for but I've always wrote them on work and um, so that's so helpful that you brought that and I didn't I'd seen on your Facebook when I had to stopped that you were a lecturer but I didn't realise if maybe you were still doing it and that was maybe in the past life well not past life but maybe like a year ago or something and um, how have you found teaching online like that's so inspiring you've done that so well done you but like how have you been doing it because a lot of my friends their teachers have found it really difficult well I, I found it a lot better than I expected and um, so I, I was really dreading it really dreading it um, you know I teach a lot I teach through seminar but also mainly through workshops so the idea of trying to run these performance workshops online gave me a lot of sleepless nights but students are amazing for themselves into it it was just it was just trying to adapt and think about all right you know I asked the students just imagine the space you're in try to turn it into your studio even for just these four hours a week that you're with me think about this space as your studio get in early clear it up get rid of your clutter and just have it as your working space and you know they found ways of, of making and experimenting online and watching each other and we miss the contact. It's really not. It's not the same as being together. But it, it did work out better than I expected it to. It was okay, and the kind of social aspect of it as well has been really, really nice. Yeah, I like. For me, it was like when I was obviously when pandemic hit, I was a term away from finishing my MA, and I was like, oh, yes. 
a lot of people, but a lot of people that were doing it were like, a lot of them deferred. We had uh, 44 students on my course and only 13 came back for the final term. Wow. All deferred, they didn't want, they could either take the PG dip or they could, they could defer and come back. But my lecture was great and he kind of just was honest and was like, I just think you should all come back and try and do this because it won't return back to normal even after summer. And there are people yeah. oh no, they don't want to do it. And I thought, okay, I actually went, you know what, I'll I'll have to work my arse off to do a movie because I've never done film. I did live performance, but I'm sure if I spend a month watching a lot of YouTube videos, researching more artwork, I can maybe get into it. And I did, they did it, I thankfully did it and got it, which was amazing. And that was kind of a, right, thanks, fuck, you managed to adapt and get that done. But it's nice to hear the other side from you who's actually doing the teaching because it's my lectures. I had all the time of day for my lectures coming on and give me a one-to-one during the pandemic that they had kids that were students that they were stressed about. Like, I, I didn't, I've got a lot of empathy and I went, oh, this is great, you're helping me. Whereas a lot of other people on the course uh, weren't exactly um, as empathetic as myself about it. And you know, <laughs> your, your tuition fees, you can understand why people get frustrated and annoyed. But it's great to hear you've managed to adapt and do that, and that's honestly brilliant. Um, you're published. You've got a book. I do have a book. Yeah, I have a book, and um, and that, that which was an amazing thing to do. That was 2018, and it's a collection of writings, some by me, yeah. but some by other people as well about my work and documentation. So that that was you know the thing for me that I wanted it to be a beautiful book, and David who designed it did a totally gorgeous job of bringing together all of those images and making it a kind of artwork in itself, an object that I was really, really proud of it and really happy to have that. I was cheesing that I managed to get a copy. I didn't mind waiting. I remember messaging you and you were like, well, let me know if you have to wait till I was like, I'll wait for your book. Like anyone else, but, but happily waited. Give yourself a plug. Can you tell the audiences where they can find your book and what it's called? Yeah. It's called Survival of the Sickest, The Art of Martin O'Brien. That's one of my catchphrases, Survival of the Sickest, you know, because of that. As that thing of the survival of the fittest always feels such a, a strange term to you. So I like the idea of survival of the sickest with a tongue laced in the cheek. Um, you can get it from the Live Art Development Agency website um, or their online bookshop, which is called Unbound. This is unbound.com. Um, and you can find it there. Yeah. That's amazing. And where can people follow you for, um, like, social media, like, to give you a wee follow, if you get some followers, yeah? Like, when um, I'm not great on social media, but you can search, just search Martin O'Brien. You can search me on Facebook or Martin O'Brien Art on Instagram. And, you know, I'll put up my photos and um, share when there's events coming up or different things like that. I have an event, actually, a talk on Thursday, which you can see if you want. That's... um. A place called Camp in Plymouth, so you can sign up to that if you just search Camp Plymouth, then you'll be able to find it. That's absolutely amazing, and you've, I take it you've got a website, yeah, you, that we can like yes. work on. Martin O'Brien Art dot co dot uk dot com. Maybe it's Martin O'Brien Performance. You might know it's story dot official because I know a lot of drag queens that. It sounds so arsy to say this, but there's drag queens that they get fan pages and it's not them, but people actually post like personal photos of them. So I'm like, George, like, official. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, so yeah. That was the, the, the thing on Instagram, though, was the, I, I only joined it 
maybe a year or a year and a half ago, but there's the hashtag Martin O'Brien. When I joined it, that I found all of these <laughs> photos of me, you know, some performance ones, but some were just, you know, random photographs that people had taken. Yeah. And oh my God, this is all a whole, <laughs> a whole other thing. It's, it's a secret surprise. The question that we ask everyone in this season, which makes it different to season one, um, is what do you think 2020 taught you? Wow. 2020 taught me, I mean, I think something that Sheree and I had always said before that seems to kind of come around again and feel more important as sort of catchphrase to one another, but in our performances as well, we say, keep breathing. And, um, you know, that just kind of hammered home really over the last year is keep breathing. You know, whatever you do, just keep going. So that, that I don't like using the word resilience, but that, that idea of just breathing, of just being, of trying to keep going and, and just find ways of keep going. That feels like the important thing for me that's come out of, of this year and this pandemic is keep breathing. Love that. And what are you grateful for in 2021? I know we're only 11 days in, but I'll be honest, Martin, the, la the last 11 days has been a fucking chaotic energy that I'm like, what is going on in this world? But is there anything that you are grateful for that you'll continue to tell yourself about this year, hopefully? Well, I think the th big thing that I'm grateful for is this forthcoming vaccine and you know, the, the work that people are doing on that and the, the I guess the, the science and and the NHS, the people that are giving the vaccine, the people that are working and, and being there in the hospitals, trying to save people. And that's what I'm grateful for. I think, yeah, the vaccine, but also then the, the, the NHS and the kind of medicine and everything that's in overdrive and trying to cope with this right now. I love that. I'm saying, I totally agree with you. I'm thankful for all the key workers and scientists right now in the world. Doing amazing. It's been such a pleasure to have you, Martin, on this episode and actually get to meet you properly. Um, every episode of Afternoon Delight, we always finish with a sort of inspirational quote. And mm -hmm. it's lovely if you hear yours before we close off. Absolutely. It's been absolutely delight, Jodie. Uh, thanks for having me on. Really nice to talk and nice to meet you. And I think I could only finish by saying, fight sickness with sickness. That's brilliant. Absolutely amazing. Martin, thanks so much for joining me. I honestly was so fangirling. I hope you could hear it in me, like how excited I was by all that. Um, a great quote to end on. Martin sums it all up very perfectly. I love that I'm an Aquarius and he's a Leo and we're very much, you know, the same kind of person but on different spectrums, which is just literally what the alter ego is in the Zodiacs with Aquarius and Leo, two kind of souls that are very much the opposite, but somehow find a connection. His work is just so exceptional. When he said that mucus factory stuff, let me tell you, there's an image on his Instagram of him covered in green, and I thought it was genuine paint. <laughs> it was not paint. Oh, honestly, I can I can thank him enough for joining me, and it, it's so helpful to talk to other artists, but it's really helpful to talk to an artist that has CF. Very much like when I had Raylene Goody on, it was great to have her give me perspective on her cystic fibrosis experience as an actor, but for Martin particularly as a lecturer as well, 
something for me I've always considered in the future, which I kept sass for, was to go back into teaching and do maybe a sort of college lecturing degree that I could maybe one day lecture. I'd love to do that when I'm older. And I've got the babies and I'm pure living my, like, fantasy life. But honestly, it's so great to have him on the podcast and hear his incredible work. You know, it's, it was genuinely inspirational and I needed that because I've not had any creative energy around me recently. Um, I've been planning my whole life because January is always a get rid of the negative stuff and start fresh and what better way to start a year with someone that actually mentored me unintentionally and I consider to be an icon. It was just amazing. Thank you so much for joining me on Afternoon Delight. Please do give Martin a follow on the social medias that he mentioned and check out his work via his website. I can't actually quite believe that I've got this next guest next week. Um, I've got two guests. I've got Juniper Lovelace, drag artist from Glasgow, which is really exciting. But I've also got Rob Match, the musical theatre performer, who is well known on Instagram and Twitter. And he's just an absolute icon. And another Leo. I feel like I'm just getting all the Leos on my podcast this season. And they'll both be talking to me about what 2020 taught them and what they're grateful for this year. So please do stay tuned for those episodes and check them out. And if you haven't already, please do give this podcast a subscribe. I'd really appreciate that. I'm away to have a nice wee night to myself. It's been honestly such a pleasure Happy Sunday to all of you listening. Take care. The light is at the end of the tunnel. Eventually we will get there. But until then, as always, stay safe and remember to breathe. Afternoon Delight. Real people, real stories, a local podcast for local artists.